Welcome to Sparks <coughs> History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are very, very pleased to have with us today award-winning author, Bazbanes. Mr. Bazbanes has written numerous highly acclaimed books about books on paper, the everything of its 2,000-year history, a world of letters, every book its reader, the power of the printed word to stir the world, a splendor of letters, the permanence of books in an impermanent world, etc., uh, etc. Et There's much, much more. And today we'll be focusing on Frost of Snow, a life of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's a wonderful book, deeply yeah. fascinating. Thank you. I purchased it on Amazon. <laughs> Go on to Amazon, click of a button, comes right to your house, and I highly, highly recommend it. Just to get started, perhaps a bit about your background and how you became interested in Longfellow. Yes, thank you. Uh, and thank you for the wonderful introduction. Uh, as you mentioned, I've written a number of books. This is the 10th, and all of them have been have had a, a, a feature in common. They, they are generally related to book culture, but also cultural history. I had yet to do a, a biography, and I, I, I thought it was time, you know, after nine books, that uh, I think a good test for a, a nonfiction writer is to take on a single life. And of course, then you have to find a worthy life to profile who hasn't been done in a good long time and who deserves a telling. And it just seemed to me for a variety of reasons that Longfellow uh, hadn't been done in a good while. He had fallen out of fashion. He had even been forgotten. He had been excised from the uh, exile from the literary canon, I thought unfairly. And also that I live in New England. I'm a New Englander and I had spent some time in the, <clears throat> the Longfellow House, which is a national <clears throat> Pardon me, National Park Service historic site. It's filled with uh, archives and artifacts readily available to me, so much of which had not been uh, accessed before, that the time was right for a new life. And also, also to be able to tell for the first time in great detail the influence of his second wife and true intellectual partner, uh, Francis Elizabeth Appleton Longfellow. So that really was an opportunity for me to do something that I thought would be worthwhile and uh, and make a, a contribution to the world of letters. Wonderful. How's that? <laughs> that's, that's great. That's wonderful. What would you, if you just set the scene for a second in terms of a very simple timeline and the early influences um, that shaped Longfellow? Well, you mean Longfellow as the individual and as the uh, who the man who became this world-renowned poet, iconic poet. Even uh, he really began as a scholar, uh, but he always had this this passion, this drive to write, to be a writer. And he has he came from a prominent but not necessarily wealthy New England family, a distinguished Maine family from the state of Maine. His father was a lawyer. His father wanted Henry, young Henry, to follow. Uh, in his footsteps and become a lawyer. Henry really wanted to be a, a writer. And his father to told him, you know, if you, unfortunately, you do, you do not come from the means which will allow you to be a full-time writer. You have to have another profession. Well, Henry really insisted. He went to Bowdoin College up in uh, Brunswick, Maine, a very fine school that his father, where his father was an overseer. He actually began college at the age of 15. He graduated at the age of 18, 
1825, fourth in his class. One of his classmates was Nathaniel Hawthorne, and they became they remained became very good friends in the years ahead. Graduating fourth in his class on graduation day, he was offered the opportunity to be a full professor of modern European languages at a newly established professorship at Bowdoin College. But the first thing he had to do was to, one of the requirements was, of course, to know these languages that he would be expected to teach. And at his own expense, with the help of his father, he proceeded in 1826 to travel at the age of 18, 19 by this time, to Europe. And he spent three years traveling through Europe, France, Italy, Spain, Germany, learning half a dozen languages, which he then came back and uh, and uh, taught for seven years at Bowdoin College before getting another opportunity to teach a similar position, to accept a similar position at Harvard College, which he said, we'll get to that afterwards. But during that first trip, I call it in the book, his awakening, he absorbed all of these, not only, it's very important, not only did, what, did he absorb literate, uh, languages, but literatures in Spain, where he met Washington Irving, who was kind of a mentor for him. And later he would say, it was the sketchbook of Irving, the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, detailing his European travels that really inspired him to be a writer. And in fact, his first book was called Ultramira, Pilgrimage Beyond the Seas. It was kind of a kind of a tribute to Irving. He so wanted to absorb literatures, uh, languages, and to weave these into the development, the emergence of, a, of a, a distinctive American literary tradition. This is what he was emboldened to do, but he was also emboldened to do it by absorbing uh, European uh, cultures and literatures. And by the time he was done, he was finished, he, he had mastered 12 to 15 languages. His library in Cambridge still has 12,000 volumes and 45 dialects, 15 languages, all of which we can assume he read with fluency and some, and a number of which, of course, he, he, he translated into English. He, he is the first person to translate all of Dante into English by an American, the first American to translate all of Dante. He introduced no fewer than 25 German authors to American readers, including Goethe and Schiller. While he was in Spain, this is very important because I think this has some relevance to a poem I expect you will want to discuss at some point, uh, the Jewish cemetery at Newport, but it became familiar also not only with Spanish traditions, but of also the Sephardic Jewish traditions. He didn't, he did not master Hebrew. He, he looked at it. He studied it. He was interested in it. And he was very interested in, of course, in Hebrew history and Jewish history. So he absorbed so many of these different uh, influences. And this is how he began as a scholar and then later as a poet and as a writer. He was truly a man, a man of letters. He was, he was, uh, uh, fluent and, uh, and, and every different form of poetry, but he was also a translator. The first nine books he, he published were translations. When he got back to Bowdoin in Maine, he wanted to teach his, these kids, uh, Spanish or Italian or French, and there were no texts available. So he, he wrote his own, published his own. In one instance, he really pleaded with his publisher in Boston to send proofs off the press so he could distribute them among his students. And so he began as a translator and a very important book he published uh, in 1844, the first of its kind in the United States was the poets and poetry of Europe, 10 different European languages and literatures, poems that he selected with his wife, his second wife, who was an intellectual partner of his and also a great classicist at Harvard, Cornelius Conway Felton. 
He wrote the prefaces, but he also translated these poems himself. So uh, I, I guess all of these factors kind of shaped the man who became Longfellow, but then also along the way, he turned exclusively to poetry. And I suspect you might want to talk about that too, as we move so, along. So, so when, when did he start writing poetry and what was his early works? Yes, okay. So by the time he arrived on the Brunswick campus, Brunswick, Maine, as a 15-year-old, he spent his freshman year at home that he was allowed to be tutored to the city of Portland. But then he began his sophomore year. By the time he arrived on the campus of Bowdoin College, he was already a published poet. His father, I mean, he, he, he loved his father. He respected his father. He listened to his father. Uh, his mother also, Zilpha Wadsworth Longfellow, was a great influence on his life, where his women were basically throughout his life. And he heeded them and he listened to them, but he also had a mind of his own. He was going to be a poet. And while he was a student, even before he became a student at Bowdoin, he was submitting poems. And we look at some of them today. It's juvenilia. You wouldn't collect it. Uh, the Battle at Lovell's Pond is his first published poem in a Portland newspaper at the age of 13. But it's a poem, and it's drawn from his grandfather, General Peleg Wadsworth, who was a hero of the Revolutionary War, a great hero of his, who influenced him greatly. So it was kind of based on stories that he'd heard from his grandfather. And while he was a student at Bowdoin, he submitted poems to poetry to a number of publications, and they were published, several of them anonymously or just with his, his initials. Uh, and he was he was recognized as a, as a person who was who was developing in, into someone who would be a, a person of significance, a literary force. But again, he couldn't afford to be a full-time poet. He uh, really devoted the first seven years after he got back to his scholarship to teaching. Uh, he was also the librarian. He built the at Bowdoin, so his collateral duty there was to help build the library. And he's credited for bringing in all of these uh, European traditions. And he did a similar thing when he got to Harvard. He was selected to replace George Tickner at Harvard, and he functioned in the same capacity at Harvard for 18 years. So for 25 years, he was a professor, a professor of languages and a translator, and he wrote wonderful works of criticism. His first two published books were prose works, Alge Vermeer, the book I mentioned. Uh, the second one was Hyperion, which we'll discuss perhaps at some point. It was a book that included a Romana Clay about his failed attempt to win the hand of Fanny Appleton, a seven-year quest, which I write about in the book. Uh, but then he turned in 1839, his first collection of poetry, 1839, uh, Voices of the Night. And it was a wonderful collection. It had a number of poems in there, including A Psalm of Life, which is uh, which we I guess we can say was his breakthrough poem. It was published uh, pseudonymously, but then it very quickly became known who wrote it, and it became a, an international sensation. It went through multiple printings and uh, translated into at least 30 languages. Uh, people continue, you know, they read footsteps on the sand of sands of time, learn to labor and to wait. I mean, phrases that have become idiomatic in the language. People quote Longfellow today, they don't even realize they're quoting him. But that particular poem has at least four lines that have entered the language. That was his first breakthrough poem. That was 1839, while he was still teaching, uh, even in four years before his second marriage to Fanny uh, Appleton. And at that same year, he published uh, Hyperion. So that's a prose work, 1839, his first collection of poetry, 1839. And he also did some criticism that year. And he worked in a, on a uh, play in verse, which never went very far, but 
he was a man of letters. He was working and he, and he worked. He, he had a, a really profound work ethic, uh, which, which actually characterizes his entire life up and really until literally until the final days of his life. He wrote a wonderful poem, you know, in the final week of his life, The Bells of San Blas, which is, I think, one of his great poems. And he finished it a week before he died. A little bit about his personality. His personality. Uh, He was a a decidedly decent man. You know, and I I think I'm asked sometimes, you know, I spent eight years on this. And I I could have spent 15. I mean, if I had had the time and the inclination or... Uh, to do it because there's so much to learn and, and there remains when I'm preparing for a, a, a program like this, I, I do more work. And I did a little more work on the anticipating that you might ask me about, you know, the Jewish cemetery at Newport. I think I needed to know a little. So I'm constantly learning things about him. But one thing I'm often asked, what surprised you the most about Longfellow and your research? And I said, what well, didn't surprise me so much as just kind of reaffirmed but just how truly decent a man that he was. He was honest. He was a man of great moral character. Uh, he he was really, I, you can't meet anyone who ever met him who didn't like him, who wasn't impressed by him. The only person I could think of who intensely disliked him is someone who never met him was Edgar Allan Poe. And he had issues that were, you know, entirely of his own. Uh, he was a disturbed man. He was uh, envious of Longfellow's great celebrity. He'd married a wonderful, wealthy young woman. People, he had a position, he called him the professor. He called him the frog pondians. This whole clique of inter- and Cambridge and Boston intellectuals. This is the frog pond, it's called in Boston commerce. So it was, it was a pose sneer at the, at this, at this cabal of intellectuals who he detested. So there's that. But I guess it's the, the utter decency of Longfellow and that you, know, you just you just can't find any mention of him where people met him and weren't really genuinely impressed by him. If you were speaking with him, he would look you in the eyes and he really wanted to hear what you had to say. People complain, what's Longfellow? You never tell us much about yourself. And he said, I guess I don't. I want to hear about you. And he meant that. It's Unfortunately, he kept a wonderful journal throughout his life, 50 years or so. I photographed every page of it in the Houghton Library at, at Harvard, hundreds of photographs. And while he tells us a lot about what's going on in his life and the daily activities, he really doesn't tell us much about the creative process, where these wellsprings of creativity are coming from. He gives us hints, again, to return to the Jewish cemetery at Newport. I can tell you precisely the day he got the idea for that. If I may, should I move on to that? We'll, we'll get I expect to that. you want to talk about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, shortly. good. But, but remind, remind me to talk about how that came, came about. But, you know, he, he, uh, he, he would record these events. He's walking downtown. He sees uh, some gravestones behind the locked gate, and he becomes curious. But anyway, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But he will record these, these details of his life. But one day he will say, okay, I began today, and he's beginning today. I began today, and he's, he says, uh, my epic poem on Menzaboho, and that's the name, that was what the name of this long poem about Native Americans was going to be, and then he changes it to Hiawatha later, and he thinks, and if also because it's got a sound to it, he thinks it's another name, he believes it's another name for the same uh, Indian chieftain from uh, uh, legendary times, 
And he says it has a nice eponymous sound to it, and he likes the sound of Hiawatha. It's very melodious, and and it sounds it sounds good rolling off the tongue. So, but he'll so he'll tell us that you know. Right. But what really emboldened him to write about the the Native Americans? You know, we we have to divine that from other other sources. They're they're available, but that's why it takes eight years to research one of these things. What is but, uh, anyway? I guess I guess. Right, I'm sorry. What is your just favorite? to sum up, his, his utter decency was what impressed me most about about yeah. who he was and his and the fact that he was discreet and and he was uh, he was just uh, scrupulously loyal. If you became if you were his friend, once you became his friend, you were his friend for life, and regardless of what uh, misfortune might befall you, you would not lose Henry Longfellow. I mean, we can say this about Franklin Pierce who was one of their classmates at Bowdoin, who became president of the United States. They were, they were talking about Franklin Pierce, Longfellow, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. You know, they were the classes of 1824 and 1825, and they became pretty good friends. Longfellow wasn't that close with Pierce, but Hawthorne was. Uh, Pierce fell really out of favor. I mean, he became, he's still regarded as one of the worst presidents in American history for other reasons. But you will never find, out of all the Boston uh Brahmins in general turned against Pierce. You'd never find Henry or Hawthorne turning against them ever, even in anything they wrote. So, I mean, I guess it was his discretion, his loyalty, his decency. Uh, and I, and I think you find this permeating his poetry, his writing. And one of the reasons why he really resonates, he resonated with everyone across all democrat, all demographics. I mean, Queen Victoria. Uh, will receive him at Windsor Castle in 1868. And she writes in her diary that night, she noticed how the the staff, the domestic staff, we could use the word servants in that day, they were all taking up uh, vantage points to get a peek at this guy with the long flowing beard. And she was astounded. You know, these people know who this poet is? And she inquired. They said, oh, your majesty, we all know who Longfellow is. And then, you know, and she said, what, what a great tribute, a poet so beloved. And then he would go visit with Dickens and Lord Tennyson. Lord Tennyson was the poet laureate in England. And Tennyson loved Longfellow, but he complained, I sell very well, but Longfellow sells better in my, in, in England, you know. So, uh, he not only had a, a great uh, empathy with people, but what people of all social strata, all demographics, and internationally, it was it was a remarkable thing. Another reason why he deserved, I thought, I think, another look, another life, another examination, which is why I, one of the many reasons I came to write this book. What is your favorite Longfellow poem? And why? Yeah, you know, I, there there were. I tried to count. There's no definitive number. But there have been estimates, and because he published in magazines and books and editions, but about 440 published poems in his lifetime. It's a lot, and there are scores other of others that which were published during his lifetime. One of which is called "The Cross of Snow." It was a sonnet. It is a sonnet that he published, that he wrote on the 18th anniversary to the day, the 18th anniversary of the death, the horrific death of his second wife, Fanny, who died in a domestic accident that it just defines... Fire, the fire, fire on her dress. dress. The fire on the her dress. The fire, she, a dripping candle. She was clipping snippets of hair from one of her daughters and try, 
sealing them in envelopes with wax and the candle, and she burst into horrible. And then he was a witness to this, and this is why he later grew the beard. He attempted to put out the flames, and he had suffered severe facial burns, and he grew the beard. So after that, you know, for a period, he didn't, he couldn't write original poetry. That's when he turned to translating Dante. So we get Dante out of that. He turns to Dante. And then finally he comes back to poetry and he turns more and more to the writing of sonnets. He was a master of every poetic form. I mean, and, and he, he studied the, the meters and the, and the stanzas and the structure of odes, ballads. Uh, long narrative free form. I mean, he was a, a magnificent student of form, European forms, which he then adapted for uh, American uh, subjects. But he then also returned to the sonnet, which, I, which to me is, is just such a beautiful classic structure. It's 14 lines, an octet and a sestet. And, and on the 18th anniversary of Fanny's death, and she died on the other, she was buried actually on the 18th, what would have been their 18th anniversary, their 18th wedding anniversary. So 18 figured uh, into the calculus of that. And it was really one easily the most personal poem that he'd ever written, The Cross of Snow. It's 14 lines. I'll be happy to read it for you if you'd like. Yes, At some please. point, it's short. It's 14 lines. Read it, please. But let me just set the scene yeah. for it. Yeah, I will. But let me just set the scene for Absolutely. it because in the Longfellow House, which is uh, which is now – Again, as I said, a National Park Service historic site up in the master bedroom where he, he lived. He lived for 50 years and 18 years of his marriage. And this was all of the original furnishings and across the, 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 the bed where they lived as a couple, where her children were born, where she died, where he would die, was this portrait of his wife, a very beautiful portrait, which was his favorite portrait. And every night he looked at it. And of course, sleep is something that Henry treasures, and uh, so much of uh, his thinking and his feelings come out at, at night. He has hymns to the night when he lost his first wife from after a miscarriage. He speaks to her in footsteps of angels. She visits him in the night. So then he's contemplating this painting on the wall, and that's in the first eight lines of the poem, and then the final six lines as a contemplation of another poem that had caused a sensation world around the world. It was called the Mountain of the Holy Cross. It was a recently discovered mountain in the Colorado Rockies, which through a freak of nature had some fissures on the side, which suggested a huge cross. And this is, so this is, so it's, it's a really, so as I read this, it's a contemplation of two poems. And I'll just read it. I ha- happen to have it here. Absolutely. Let's see if I can do it justice. <clears throat> in the long sleepless watches of the night, a gentle face, the face of one long dead, looks at me from the wall where round its head the night lamp casts a halo of pale light. Here, in this room, she died. And soul more white, never through martyrdom of fire, was led to its repose. Nor can in books be read the legend of a life more benedite. There is a mountain in the distant west that, sun-defying in its deep ravines, displays a cross of snow upon its side. Such is the cross I wear upon my breast these 18 years through all the changing scenes and seasons, changeless since the day she died. He he describes the depth, the magnitude of his grief as a cross the size of a mountain, and he, he bears it across his chest unchanged. 
in 18 years, and it was so personal. He wrote it. I, in fact, if you look in the book, I think we use it as the frontispiece to the book, the holographic copy, which when I was going through the files of the Harvard Library, and you go through these things, and there was there was that poem in his hand. You know, it's one of these moments where you have to sit back and you say, oh, wow. And uh, and there it is. And, and they, so it was that one copy. He, fo- he folded it, put it in an envelope, and it was found among his papers after his death and then published posthumously. And when I saw that poem, and it's as a as a sonnet, it's brilliant. And I think I, mean, I, I can make this claim. I, others, I don't think anyone could dispute. I'd be happy if they did. I mean, name me another poet, another American poet who writes a better sonnet than Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. So for those who say that he's a poet of the past and he's fallen out of fashion and favor and his his poetry is dated, I say, look at his sonnets. At least he wrote about, as he he turned increasingly to sonnets towards the end of his life as a more mature form of expression, just 14 lines. You have to follow a very specific structure. It's 14 lines, iambic pentameter. You have an octet and a sestet and a, and a little volta at the end where you have a switch, you know, and, it, and he followed the form, the Petrarchian sonnet. Name me another American, that, that, that poet that, that, has, that, that writes a sonnet that comes close to Longfellow, and I'll tip my hat because uh, I've checked and I've looked. Okay, go over to England. Well, you've got Shakespeare and Keats and Shelley or Byron. Well, you've got some very good sonneteers on that side of the pond. But among Americans, it's pretty special. And that poem, for me, when I read it, I was looking, again, I was writing this biography of Longfellow and his wife. His wife is a very important component of the book. It is a life of Longfellow, but it's also a life of his wife. And I wanted a way to... Yes, it's a life of Longfellow, but to somehow bring his wife into the title and to do that with this poem, which for me also provided a kind of structural blueprint for the book, how I was really going to structure the book and to write it. And that poem in 14 lines kind of suggested to me a way that I might go about doing it in in the writing, because there's such a, a, a plethora of material correspondence. I mean, Henry, 10,000 letters he wrote survive about, and a good many of them are at Harvard College, letters he received. 900 of Fanny's letters. She she was a brilliant woman, brilliant letter. They survived. And and so many of them haven't really been used before in a biographical treatment, which allowed me, a writer in the 21st century, to allow two figures from the 19th century to basically speak in their own voices, I like to hear people's voices. I like to hear what they have to say. And because they were such wonderful letter, letter writers and writers in general, I mean, they, you can hear them. You can hear their voices. So I structured the book. So you kind of have uh, converging narratives. And so you have, a, you know, almost like a jazz jazz players who exchange fours. You know, I have a solo here. Let's have a, one chapter here. When they finally meet in Switzerland and then they become a couple – 